Hey guys, this is Pastor Zach, and you are listening to Sermon Notes here at HPC. Uh, so Revelation chapter 2, we're going to begin reading in uh, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write this, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. And if you're remembering, however Jesus describes himself is for a purpose. And however he's revealed himself to you is for a purpose. I feel like I want to just keep reiterating that over and over because Jesus does in each one of these letters the way he presents himself. And, uh, and I don't want us to get judgy about the way Jesus presents himself to other people. Now, the way the world presents Jesus is another story. But when Jesus writes a love letter to you, when Jesus reveals himself to you in a certain way, it's for you and it's special. And it's special right here. And Jesus is saying, I'm the one with the sharp two-edged sword. That was part of John's revelation. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Oh, okay. So this must be New England. All right. <laughs> and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. Oh, here we go with the compliment sandwich. The kiss and the spanking at the same time. I have a few things against you, and this is, I want, I want us to pay attention here. Because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. Or else I'm coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. There it is, right? The way in which he reveals himself is also the way in which he engages. Okay, here we go. Verse 17 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. So there's some uh, sort of cryptic stuff in here too. In fact, that word, uh, the hidden manna, that word kryptos, uh, it's where we get cryptic from. There's some mysterious stuff in here, some coded stuff, like you got to drip some lemon juice on this letter and look at it under a black light or something. But um, I want to dig in because I feel like the Lord maybe has some specific stuff for each of us as individuals, just as that word about redemption. And that's, this, this is where it happens. When we take these things past our head and let them settle in our heart. Because Jamal can be up here and, and Luke and Patricia and everybody in the church can file past and talk about redemption. But the truth is, unless we're willing to get real, unless we're willing to make it personal, what is he redeeming in me? What, is he, what does he want? What is he longing for? What is he convicting in me? This isn't a theology lesson about a principle of heaven. This is a life lesson about how that principle is to change and transform us. Right. Amen? Okay, so I want to say a couple things here. But first and foremost, how Jesus presents himself, the two-edged sword. When God speaks, if you're writing things down, when God speaks... It's effective coming down and going back up. That's the thing about the two-edged sword, right? Instead of just a knife, the, the, the goal of the two-edged sword is that it's effective no matter which way you swing it. And when we think of the word of God, I think sometimes as um, believers or I don't even know if I don't even know if you qualify as a believer if you sort of manip yeah, now we all do it. What am I saying? Um, we all do this. We grind down one of the edges. We grind it down. You know why? It's safer. It's safer. A knife with two sharp edges is a lot more dangerous. It's a lot riskier in the kitchen than, you know, one dull edge. And I think sometimes as believers, we grind down one of those things. You see, the word of God is exponentially powerful when we use it in every aspect of our lives instead of just picking and choosing which way we want to cut with it. When we let it come back, see, most of us, we wield the word of God like a sword because we learn it's a sword. But really, we, we like to use it like a knife because as long as that sharp edge is pointed away from us, 
we're never going to get hurt by it. But if the word of God can, can penetrate and separate bone and marrow, guess what? It needs to be able to separate our bone and our marrow. It needs to be able to come back and cut between our spirit and our flesh. Okay? I don't know. Y'all are getting excited about that. And I'm like, man, that's, that's hard. I love that. I love that. I love it when people get excited, you know, when there's like hard teaching. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah. Please, sir, may I have some more? Please, may I have another? Where's Finn at? We need some Oliver Twist jokes up here. When God speaks, it's effective coming down and going back up. We see that, right? We see that with Jesus in the wilderness. The way Jesus creates a defense for himself. He sends the word of God back up into the spirit realm, back up at Satan, back up at whatever's coming down on him. The word of God penetrates not just coming out of heaven, but when it comes back out of us, when we are regurgitating, when we are reproducing the truth of the word of God, instead of just deciding which areas we want to apply it to, when it's functional and effective in every aspect of our life, we see, we see the fruit of that. The word of God is a two-edged sword. And if you're writing things down, get this, don't lose your edge. Don't lose your edge. He'll never lose his edge. It's always effective coming down. Doesn't the word tell us that the word never returns void? But what that means is as it returns, it's cutting, coming back. It's a two-edged sword, and it needs to be able to do surgery on us too. All right, let's keep going. Yeah, somebody just needed that just to get back in the word. Let it, let it cut you. Verse 13 says, um, I know where you dwell, and I know that it's where Satan's throne is. I love, Jesus doesn't like, he doesn't put the kid gloves on. You know what I'm saying? He's like, let's just be real. Uh, Satan's throne is right there in your hometown. And uh, I, wanna, I want to m make a couple notes about where Satan's throne is. Because most of us, we think of Satan's throne as like the fiery pits of hell, you know. We're, we envision some like page out of like Dante's Inferno. We're, we're, we're seeing, you know, demons dancing around and flames licking up the sides and all this kind of thing. But I want, I want you to take note of the next few descriptions of where Satan's throne is, okay? Number one, you hold fast my name. You don't deny my faith. And Antipas, one of my witnesses, became a martyr. So watch this. Satan's throne is a place where people hold fast to the name of God. People do not deny their faith. And the church has heroes, Wait a minute. Doggone it. I had this figured out. I thought that was like all good stuff. Nope, that's where Satan's throne is. Where people hold fast the name of God just when you thought you were safe, right? I think it's interesting, isn't it? How the church that's here, clearly, if Jesus brings it up in his letter, clearly the church was holding to the name of God. And they were not denying their faith. Things that we immediately say, oh, yep, well, that makes sense. That If you were denying your faith, yes, we can draw a clear distinction between, you know, where God rules and where Satan rules. But this was a church that goes down in the books, not for its faithlessness, not for its denial of God, not for even forsaking his name, but rather for compromise, for compromise. It's not that we get rid of or delete the name of God. It's what we add to it that becomes the problem. That is where Satan's throne is. You see, let's just say, like, if you're an atheist, like, you don't really need to be bothered. You're like low maintenance for hell. You know what I'm saying? Think about it, right? It's like, you've got nothing to lose, you know? And I think that sometimes, you know, even, even to the point of agnostics or, you know, when we, we make it a heady thing, we make it a whatever, 
The enemy's not that concerned about convincing you of anything because you've convinced yourself that there is nothing about heaven that's for you. There's nothing about the Father that's for you. But for people, for people who will hold fast to the name of God, will, 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 not, will refuse to deny their faith in God, and for people who have heroes like Antipas, martyrs, spiritual giants to look up to and say, wow, look who's in our midst. Wow, look who we're hearing preach. Look whose podcasts we're listening to. Look whose YouTubes we're watching. Look at who we're gleaning from. Wow. That's the place. If, if I'm thinking, I'm just thinking, playing the devil's advocate, you know. I'm just thinking that's where I would want to set up shop. So he gets into where those compromises are, and uh, we're going to move into that right here. Verse 14 and 15, he says, but I have this against you. Doggone it. I don't want you to have anything against me, Lord. And he's like, I don't want you to have anything against me. Watch this. I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching. Wasn't this interesting? That compromise comes in the form of teaching. Jesus says it throughout the gospel, right? In the last days, it's going to be false teachers, false teachers, false prophets, false prophets. Some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. Do you remember the story of Balaam? You remember Balaam's donkey? Remember Numbers 24, 5, 6? Numbers, uh, in, in those chapters, we see this really cool picture. Um, and for everybody who, like, for everybody who knows that passage, you couldn't help when you watched Shrek but to think of Balaam's donkey. Because, you know, Shrek notes that the donkey is the talkingest thing, you know. And uh, I know I'm watching it, and that's how spiritual I am, that I'm like, I'm like, ha, 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 Balaam's donkey. Uh, so good. If you don't remember it, basically, Balak is a, a king, a Midianite king, and he hires a sorcerer, Balaam, to put a curse on Israel. Israel was moving forward across the wilderness. Balaam says, okay, I can't really do anything that the Lord, this is interesting, right? He's not a follower of Jehovah, none of that, but he is in tune enough with the spirit realm to know that whatever he does is futile unless it's in agreement with God. And he actually says, I can only do what the Lord does. If the Lord is cursing, then I can come into alignment with that curse. If the Lord is blessing, then I can come into agreement with that blessing. Even Balaam figured that out, right? So uh, it happens three times. Balak, Balak sends Balaam out, and Balaam comes back and says, I can't do it. I can't, I, can't, uh, I can't curse a people that God's blessing. And it's just not gonna stick. You know what I'm saying? I can't, I can't put myself in that kind of contradiction, cosmic contradiction. Some of y'all just need to learn that lesson this morning. Um, but at one point, he's going up to do it, and his donkey um, won't let him go, and he starts whipping his donkey. And, uh, and his donkey finally turns around and says, like, do you not see the angel of the Lord in front of us? The donkey starts talking to him, right? It's in the Bible. And uh, so, you know it's a crazy story, like, when I have to stop and say, it's in the Bible. <laughs> it really is. All right, go back and read it. And uh, so anyway, I feel like if there was ever going to be some narrative with talking animals, it should have been Noah's Ark. I feel like I just would have loved to have heard what the animals had to say about this, uh, especially the unicorns who didn't make it on. <laughs> I, I, I want to go back and hear their side of the story because I feel like the horses were left out of the magic and they were like, yeah, unicorns, it's on Tuesday. <laughs> See you there. Monday afternoon rolls around, the door closes. Hoofs up. Let's see how magical you are at the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> I'm 
I need to pray for the unicorns. So Balaam and Balak, right? Dead serious. What we learn is that Balaam, while refusing to declare a curse, and ends up, what he actually does, he goes on this great big monologue, much to Balak's chagrin. Balaam goes on this great big monologue, we're not going to turn there, but you can read it later, um, of actually blessing the people of Israel, okay? So why then does he show up in the letter, the Lord's letter to Pergamum, as a false teacher? Because if you move forward in Numbers to chapter 31, verse 16 we find that while he refused to curse Israel, he taught Balak how to cause them their downfall. It wasn't going to be through blessing and cursing. Some of y'all are like, oh, I thought, you know, as long as we could narrow everything down to blessing and cursing, right? As long as I can go through deliverance and, and break off every curse, I should be good, right? As long as I can just, you know, keep praying blessings over me and my family as long as I can just keep singing, you know, the blessing over and over in my house, as long as I just put that song on repeat in the car every morning, like I should be good, right? The teaching that Balaam offers Balak, it looks like this, that you could declare the blessings of the Lord, but you could deploy the curses of the world. And I feel like some of us, we're caught up in this teaching. We're caught up in this. Even though maybe nobody said it to you, the church has taught it over and over. That even though we can declare with our mouths, and don't get me wrong, what you say with your mouth is powerful. Scientists and neurologists have found that there are parts of our brain that will only listen to and respond to our own voice. What that means is there are parts of you that are only engaged when it's verbalized through your own mouth. And you were created that way. So what we speak is important and what we don't speak is important. But the false teaching here is that while we can declare a blessing out of our mouth, we can simultaneously be deploying the curses of the world. Well, what does that mean? I thought you had to like speak a curse. No, you can live one out. In fact, the very things that are pointed to in this letter is that there, uh, he says, you hold fast to the teaching who put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Well, the whole eating things sacrificed, let's just boil it down to this. It's what you take in and what you join yourself to. In fact, some of us, what we take in, we make a point not to talk about it. As long as I'm speaking blessing, as long as I'm declaring blessing, the favor of God. <laughs> All the while taking in death, taking in brokenness, taking in toxins, spiritual toxins. And what you join yourself to. I... Man, is it all right if I just get, like, tough with everybody? Okay. I just I want to be careful because I see some kids in the room. I'm going to try to keep it, you know, rated PGR. <laughs> and my wife's never heard anything bad, so I definitely can't say, you know, I have to wait till she's not here to really give the, the real teaching, you know. But, um, guys... I feel like the way that we raise our kids, the way that we raise our kids, this is where it gets really tough. Because when you look at your children, all you can think, the only thing that comes out of you, well, depending on what day it is, is blessing. <laughs> like you, you want to bless your kids. You want them to be raised up. You want to see them thrive. You want to see them grow. You want to see them, uh, you know, experience the fullness of everything God has for them, the destiny, the plan. You want to see them walk in their giftings and their strengths. You want all of this for them. But the stumbling block, it comes in a more passive way. 
It's what we allow. It's what we permit, especially when it comes to what they're taking in and what they're joining themselves to. You think that we're opening up a, a Christian school for our health? Yes. <laughs> yes, that's fair. That's fair. We are. We, touche. I, I have this conviction, though, and, and it's never been stronger than when I'm trying to raise two boys who are, like, standing at the precipice of puberty. And, uh, and I'm thinking... I'm thinking, as believers, other believers with daughters, like, what are we permitting? What are we permitting? I'm thinking, I'm asking, I'm appealing to you as a brother in the Lord to guard your children actively, to cover them physically, okay? You get it, right? You get Okay, good. Please. I want to save my kids from some of the mistakes that I made. Is that all right? Can we do that? Can we try to, can we try to like create a world where they don't have to fall in the same holes that we fell in? I just, I want, I want that. I don't want it just for my kids. I want it for your kids, okay? Because we're raising our kids together. And, and, and I, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to, condemn and I'm not trying to, you know, come down on and judge and all this other stuff. I'm just thinking, I'm, I'm thinking of my kids and I want to raise them in righteousness and I want to prevent them from that teaching that as long as we just are speaking on Sundays out of our mouths, as long as we're singing Christian songs, it doesn't matter what we're joining ourselves to. It doesn't matter what we're taking into our lives, into our heads, into our minds, through our eyes, into our souls. So saints, just, uh, you know, be led of the Lord. You know what I'm saying? And I know everybody's like, Pastor Zach, I've got to choose my battles. Choose this one. Okay? Jesus Christ, help us. But here's another thing on the Balaam and Balak thing. Okay? A stumbling block only works if you're moving forward. If you're standing still, I know, that's profound. That's mad deep. <laughs> That's mad deep right there. If you're not going anywhere, stumbling blocks are no threat to you. But the people of God, even though they had to do a couple of laps around the wilderness, they were going somewhere. They were moving towards the promises. And I believe that as Christians today, as the church today, if we're not going anywhere, there is no need for a stumbling block. But when we are building momentum... And that's why this is important. I wouldn't be up here preaching about stumbling blocks if we were bumps on logs. But this church is moving forward at lightning speed. I see it on you. I see it in your kids. I see it in your marriages. I see it in your homes. I see revival on a personal level happening. I see growth. I see ministries being birthed and callings being grasped. And I see, I see destinies uh, being revealed and at the altar. I mean, Tuesday nights are just like blowing my mind. And, and I'm watching it all unfold. So guess what that means? Stumbling blocks are back in the game. And the faster you move, the more clear you need to make sure that path is. That the enemy has no opportunity to put those things in front of you or in front of your kids. Good. Okay. Thank you, Jesus. All right, Nicolaitans, right? So we talked about the Nicolaitans in the first church, and he's like, he's like, hey, I love you, Church of Ephesus, because you hate what I hate, um, the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And my wife reminded me afterward that God doesn't hate the Nicolaitans. He hates the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And I may have said God hated the Nicolaitans. I want to issue a public apology um, to all of our online partners and to our legal team. I apologize for any liability that I caused the church. Want to redeem that? Okay. God does not hate the Nicolaitans. He hates the teaching of the Nicolaitans. But you better hate it too. Just kidding. But for real. And so uh, the Nicolaitans, though, as we kind of just scratched the surface because we didn't have to go too deep on it that day. But today, the Nicolaitans 
Um, are thought to have possibly been sort of like an offshoot of Nikolai, um, who was one of the early disciples of the apostles. And, um, and he may have veered off a little bit and, and done what this church is being rebuked for, brought in some of the constructs of man, the teachings of man, and sort of made this Christian cocktail of... You know, well, here's some biblical principles, but I, I want to just point out something here. The teaching of the Nicolaitans for us today on a, on a real application level is this, that we cannot activate the ways of God within the systems of man. The systems of man, the, the, the constructs of man, we feel safe in a hierarchy. We feel safe as long as there's... Um, someone between me and God. We feel safe in a priesthood, don't we? we there, there's a reason why the Catholic Church has thrived for thousands of years, <laughs> because uh, it makes us feel safe if there's someone standing between us and God. It makes us feel safe if we can go to someone and get a prescription for our sins rather than trusting that a man who lived 2,000 years ago died and covered us. That's risky. Because what if we're wrong? <laughs> so for as long as we can, as long as we can build some form, and by the way, you know, Catholics get a bad rap for this. Protestants are notorious for this. Remember what I said a minute ago about how Satan's throne is where we can have Christian heroes? Protestants, evangelicals, Pentecostals, we are notorious for this. Even though we have a one-on-one -on -one intimacy with the Holy Spirit and with the presence of God, and, we're, and we teach that and preach that and, and worship our way into that and all of that stuff, at the same time, guys, we fall prey to this teaching. This sort of, this sort of having power over people. Because that's really what the Nicolaitans, in fact, the Greek breakdown of Nicolaitan is, it's, it's lording power over the people. The temptation, I'll, I'm going to just do another couple minutes on this because I feel strong about this. And I see it in our church, okay? And you know me, I'm not the guy that's like, do that because I said so. Hmm. I'm not that guy. But it's trickier than that. It's sneakier than that. Okay? The temptation to want to be somebody. Where does that come from? Who told you that there's somebody to be? Because if you're listening to heaven, all heaven is saying is you're already somebody. You're already my daughter, my son. So if, we're, if we find ourselves in, in the spiritual setting trying to climb some ladder, like we said the other week, there is a ladder, but Jesus came all the way down it and meets us, does not say, hey, you know, you've got to talk to this guy who's got to talk to this guy who's got to talk to me. Hey, you've got to light this candle. You've got to say this prayer. You've got to uh, do this so many times and give this many dollars, and then we can talk. But we, we, there's a thing in our flesh that is constantly seeking to attain some stature other than the stature of Jesus. That comes from hell. That is a teaching of Satan. The temptation to want to be somebody. The desire to be in position. You know what's crazy about that? Ultimately, at its root, it's rebellion. Because you're rebelling against heaven's system. And you're accepting and engaging in a construct of man. You're trying to activate the ways of God because we love the ways of God. We still want to see miracles. We still want that redemption. We still want all the stuff that we know only God provides and only he can do but we want it 
in some safer structure, infrastructure, or system that we can see and touch and that makes sense to us. Oh, he has a degree. It makes sense that he should be the one at the front. Oh, this person got this certificate or did this with school and blah, 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 blah. You know, in the Bible, when it says study to show yourself approved, it's not to God. It's for man. Because studying, somebody say amen, studying does not make you approved of God. (laughs) I got some D students in the room today. You know, I got some high school dropouts. Ultimately, it's rebellion. It comes, it comes, I can't even read these notes. My God, who wrote this mess? Yep. Oh, here we go. It comes from treating the authority of God like the hierarchy of man. When we treat the authority of God, I know some of y'all have been in that Watchman Nee book, um, that spiritual authority book. We should probably have an altar call just for that because people are like, that just wrecks your day, okay, in a powerful, awesome way. Um, and uh, that book was written in like the 40s. It was written from notes from a lecture that he, he taught at a conference. And to this day, that thing is so soaked in power, um, and it's breaking stuff off of people. It's powerful stuff. But I, um, I, I want to just say that it's very common to, for the church of today to treat the authority of God because there is God-given authority. There is God-ordained authority within the church, and we see it. There is order. There is structure. There is uh, there is authority and covering. But when we treat the authority of God like the hierarchy of man, we're in trouble. And I, I'm, I'm going to say that and keep going because I want, I want it to settle in to the places in us, to the flesh places in us that still want to be somebody, that still want to shake the right hands, that want to rub the right elbows, that want to uh, uh, achieve the right positions and the right places of power, that is not the power of God. That power, we need a place of power. We need to get a certain number of voting members on, on this board or else. That's politics. That's not in heaven. You know where they don't vote? Heaven. I'm just trying to say, you know what I'm saying? We think this democracy is so wonderful. Heaven is not a democracy, okay? The hierarchy of man. I thought there was something else on that, but maybe we'll come back to it. Verse 16, let's keep going here. Therefore, repent. There it is. Here's your chance. Remember, we talked about repenting, what it means. It means literally to do a 180. And to go the other direction. That's what repent means. And remember, we said from the the first letter, you know, when he talks about repenting, turning around. But some of us, we get in a a weird cycle of repentance, and it just looks like this. 180, 180, 180, 180, 180. And it's like you're at a skate park instead of on a journey with the Lord. And, and, And we get dizzy to where we don't even know which way we were supposed to go or which way we were supposed to leave. That's exactly where the enemy wants us. In a repetitious cycle of just doing this. You're not going anywhere. You're just going in circles. Therefore, repent. Therefore, repent. Watch this. Verse 16. Or else I'm coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. The Lord is going to war against the corruption and perversion of his truth, saints. And the interesting thing about this is that we are given the strategy to fight right here. Look at what he's saying. How's he going to fight? I'm going to war against them with what? The sword of my mouth. That sword, his word. Some of y'all are like, I've been fighting with the sword of my mouth for years. <laughs> Not your sword. Not your sword. The formula for victorious fighting, the formula for the, for, for the battle strategy of heaven is to engage with his word. His word, 
the one that cuts both ways. The one that's, and that's how you know. I see it. I, when, when, I'm, when I'm in my flesh, like I can hurt somebody with words. But when you're in the spirit, you're being just as convicted and corrected as they are. It's cutting both ways. Man, y'all just want that spanking. That's how I know it's the 830 service. Because the 9 o'clock's like, tell me something good. There's not a 9 o'clock service. Some of y'all are like, I could have come at 9. I had time to swing by Jaira Joe's. All right, we're wrapping this up. But, but get that. For those of you that the Lord's calling to engage in spiritual battles, that's the weapon. That's the sword of truth. It's the word of God, and it's wielding it with the understanding that it is meant to cut both ways. Good. Here we go. So, the last thing he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes. Here's that outro message to the overcomers. I love this. To the overcomers in the room. To him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone. And a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Wicked cloak and dagger, Jesus. I love it. I love it. So cool. Can we wear hoods and stuff? No, that crosses the line. Just went into druid territory there. You know what was going on in Pergamum at this point? Pergamum, there were a couple of different temples and things like that. But around the time when uh, this revelation came to John, there was a rise in the cult of Asclepius. And Asclepius was the god and, and sort of like a shared god. There was like a, it was a Greco-Roman shrine that was, that was uh, coming together there between these two cultures. Asclepius was the god of medicine and healing. And thank you for just pretending to be interested. I know some of somebody's like, oh, I think I had Roman mythology in my freshman year of high school, and I'd rather not go back there. But just bear with me for two seconds. So the shrine of Asclepius around that first and second century, uh, it actually um, it started to grow and develop, um, and it was turned into a lavish spa. And it became the center of... Uh, Pergamon became the center of medical treatment. In fact, um, Galen, the famous uh, doctor, uh, this was his home. And this spa, this shrine to Asclepius, Asclepius was tended to by a priesthood of doctors. They, it, was a, it was a guild of medical practitioners who also made the offerings and the sacrifices to Asclepius. I have a picture of Asclepius. Um, would you throw that up there, Dave? There's Asclepius right there. This was before scrubs were on the scene. <laughs> and apparently before doctors were paid big money because he couldn't even afford a shirt. But here's Asclepius. But I just, I want you to pay attention to what's in his left hand here. He has a staff with a serpent wrapped around it. Now, could you go to that next slide, Dave? Does that look familiar? Did you know that only 6% of doctors know what that sign came from? I think that should be in medical school. I think we should, you know what I'm saying? I think you should have to learn that before you, like, pin it to your chest. And you know what I'm saying? That... Um, You see, while we may not have a temple where we're making sacrifices to the God of medicine and healing, I think in a big way, some of the issue of Pergamum could never be more real and present than it is right now for us today in 2022 in this culture. I think that that same spirit and by the way, I'm not saying that if you're in the medical profession, then you're, you know, part of some ancient guild of, you know, satanic priesthood. But I'm also not saying you're not. 
Alan may be saying you are. All right. Maybe tomorrow. But, but what, I, what I find so interesting about this is that if you look at what's happening with the stumbling block, if you look at what's happening in, in culture today and how what we've added to our faith is a teaching that we must also join ourselves to something other than God and take in ourselves something other than his spirit, I think we're, I think we're, we can be ignorant if we're not at least conscious of the historicity of how the enemy has been teaching us lies. And this isn't a political message. This isn't a, uh, there's no agenda here other than to say to the church of Pergamum, to a church that is situated in the hub of medical worship, of medicinal healing, to the church that um, was, was trying their hardest to move forward, but the stumbling blocks were in front of them, of immorality, of taking in their bodies things that were happening in temples to gods of medicine. I just, I want to call us to see what he says to the overcomers. He says, to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but him who receives it. The hidden manna. You see what that manna represented for Israel? What that manna represented was that it was everything they needed. You notice medicine didn't fall from the sky when they were in the wilderness. Did that mean that nobody got sick? No. It meant that everything they needed was present in whatever came down from heaven. Now there were times, there were times when the snakes came out and bit everybody and they had to do that, that bronze serpent. There's, there were times when the Lord issued another prescription but the manna was sustenance. And in that sustenance came healing and health and regeneration. And I believe that, I believe that the Lord shares with us, if we're seeking him, I believe that he shares with us the same sustenance. And you may not find manna like from heaven falling in your house, but I'm not saying you won't. But you may not. But I want to encourage you that God is actively involved in providing for you. God is, is invested in making sure that you're sustained. We just have to pay attention to him. We can miss some of the most supernatural things in our lives because we are so quickly sold. We're so quickly sold that whatever, whatever else is out there will fix me will be enough for me, will we'll hold me over. The next thing he says is a white stone. He'll get a white stone. So you know what's cool about that white stone? It had a couple different meanings and it literally meant a stone that was worn smooth. And it was worn smooth because they were used a lot. And a couple of places they were used, the first thing that shows up is those stones were given to those um, who had come through a court case and there were charges against them. And at the end, your verdict was given to you in the form of a black stone, which meant that you were guilty, or a white stone, which meant you were acquitted. To him, I will give a white stone. Another thing that that white stone, that, that um, Greek word, we see it show up in, uh, in historical literature, is it was a ticket. 
It was a ticket that you had to pay for that you would show and redeem. Don't look at that. Somebody's personal information. It was a ticket that you would show up to like a concert to get in the door, you know, or like a teaching hall or probably not a concert, but you get it. It was a ticket and uh, for a specified event and it was to be redeemed um, at the function for attendance. And when the Lord gives us that white stone, it's as an invitation. It's a backstage pass to what he's doing. It's a peek behind the curtain to participate. It's a front row seat at a widespread act of redemption and ultimately to the paradise that we're called to, to heaven. It was also a vote. In fact, the only other place that we see this word in scripture is when Paul says in his own preaching and testimony, and he talks about who he used to be, a persecutor of Christians, and he says, I would cast my vote against them and they'd be put to death. The martyrs, the martyrs of the New Testament were voted against and people would make the decision to execute based on the votes. This is a vote just when I said heaven doesn't vote. <laughs> Thanks, Lord. In your favor. It's the Lord saying you're acquitted. That you're guiltless, that you're innocent. Would you stand with me? Before I let you go, I want to tell you this one other cool thing. So Antipas, right? the one who is mentioned in this, uh, in this story, Antipas. <laughs> we don't have a lot of scriptural context for him, like really, or at all, other than this letter. But um, historically, you know, some of the, the scribes and the historians are, are writing of what happened here. And Antipas was the bishop of the church of Pergamum. And he was martyred. And he was, uh, he was thrown into a burning, uh, a red-hot bowl where sacrifices would be made to these gods. Um, and legend has it that his body was not um, burned, but that he just died peacefully. He went with the Lord. And as they recover his body and bury him in a tomb, which is still in Pergamum to this day, uh, that that tomb became the site of supernatural healing right in the center of a city where people would come for healing. Right in a place that Satan had fooled everyone into believing that if they made the right sacrifices to the right God, here lies the tomb of a man who did make the right sacrifice. Here lies the final resting place, except it's not of one who refused to give up the name and deny his faith, who refused to bow to the throne that was in his town, that was in his region, but instead to bow before the Father. And it was that man's sacrifice. See, that's what redemption looks like. When the sacrifices that we make in obedience, when the sacrifices, when what we give up because the Lord says, give it up, it's worth it, that's the white stone. You're not acquitted maybe from the courts of man, but you are permanently held as innocent coming through the gates of eternity. And that sacrifice, for some of you, you're still this side of eternity. I believe that every sacrifice becomes an opportunity. I think that every grave that we dig and leave behind our past, whatever it is, some of you guys are still grieving over losses, breakups and separations and, and prodigals and divorces and, and diagnoses and, and chapter 11s. And, and, and there are things that we look back and we still grieve. But part of this redemption process is that whatever we're willing to look back at the Lord and say, God, it's in your hands. 
It belongs to you. Lord, take this and make something beautiful out of it. Take this and do what you will. Take this, it's yours. Every time we offer that back to the Lord, he turns it into the answer the world was really looking for all along. He uses it to reveal himself. Look what I can do. Look what I can do. And that's my prayer over every one of these tickets. Look what I can do. Yes, sir, in Jesus' name. Look what he can do. Look what he can do. Look what he can do. Come and be healed. Yes, sir. Come and be set free. Here's one that just got delivered. Here's one that's not in bondage anymore. Look what he can do. Look what he can do. I love it. I love it. So, Father, I pray over the tombs in this room. I pray over the things that have been put to death. I, I pray over the things that have been lost and martyred. I pray over the things that have gone down with the ship. And Lord, we say, be glorified. We sanctify our losses in Jesus' name. We plead the blood of Jesus Christ and the blood of the cross of Calvary. God, that that shadow would be cast across our soul and that under it, Lord, that we would find the strength not only to hold fast to your name and never deny our faith, but to never have to add to it whatever this world is teaching us. God, I pray that you would show us the places where we have allowed stumbling blocks to do what they were meant to do and to keep us from moving forward. God, I speak momentum and life and direction and propulsion of your spirit behind every one of your sons and daughters in this room, God that we would see the fullness of what you desire for our lives, that we would see your glory come and your kingdom come, your will be done in our lives as it is in heaven. We receive that white stone. We receive that new name. And it's in your name we pray, amen. Hey, God bless you guys. Have the best day ever. This is Pastor Zach, and you've been listening to HPC Sermon Notes. Love you guys. God bless you, and have the best day of your life.